John Degada is the author of Halls of Fame, About a Mountain, and The Lifespan of a Fact, as well as the editor of the three-volume series, A New History of the Essay. He's received many honors, including a Guggenheim, NEA, and Lannan Foundation Fellowship. His essays have appeared in The Believer, Harper's, and Conjunctions. The Lifespan of a Fact was adapted into a Broadway play starring Daniel Radcliffe, Sherry Jones, and Bobby Cannavale. He teaches creative writing at the University of Iowa. John Degada, welcome to the creative process. Thank you. So uh, you're a noted essayist, also a translator. You're going to read for us just to give listeners a taste of your writing. This is uh, a current uh, book project. It is. It's a, it's a collection of what I'm calling interpretations of Plutarch's essays. I studied Greek so long ago that I probably couldn't claim to be able to translate anything at, at this point. So this is a collection of essays by Plutarch that all have to do with love in some way. He wasn't necessarily known as a writer who cared about love, but he had so many, he has so many essays that I started noticing when, when I was rereading him that, that there, there is a theme that runs through his work that has to do with love. So I gathered some of my favorites and tried to give my spin to them. I thought I could give a little taste of the introduction to that book to maybe remind people of who Plutarch is. This is just a couple pages. There is a naturalness to his thought patterns that feels organic, transparent, and surprisingly familiar, as if we're accidentally bearing witness to how thought actually works. The evolution of an individual mind on the page as it rolls over the folds of a new idea. We've come to identify this feeling of watching thoughts on the page with the experience of reading the literary essay. And I think that if we were to take this idea of the essay and stretch it as far back historically as it can possibly go before it starts to lose its shape and become unrecognizable, we would find ourselves in the first century CE in a little town called Chironea, smack in the middle of ancient Greece, in a house that is now a church on the land where Plutarch lived, sitting beside the ridge of a mountain that the muses once called home. Chironea is, in fact, even older than the country it's in. It is so old that it has gone by four different names, and today it still answers to two. Plutarch lived his whole life in this town. He says that he knew while growing up that it was small but important, and he pledged to never leave it so that he'd never be responsible for it getting even smaller. He pitched in, therefore. He says that he was in charge of maintaining its roads for a while, that he helped decipher oracles in a temple nearby. He once wrote a vitriolic essay about the ancient historian Herodotus, a writer who'd been dead for almost 500 years, 
because he thought Herodotus had said mean things about his home. History even tells us that Plutarch ran a school for local children out of his house and that it eventually became so famous throughout Greece that his descendants kept it going for a hundred years after he died. Plutarch loved where he was from and he understood that it was the perfect place from which to write about the glories of Greece's marvelous past. In 338 BCE, 400 years before Plutarch was born, Chironea was the site of one of the most important battles in Greece's history, a clash of 60,000 men in the middle of the town's tiny quilt of farmland. It was a battle between the united forces of Greece and the encroaching empire of Macedonia that was led by King Philip and his 18-year-old son, Alexander the Great. At stake was the autonomy of Greece's independent states. And while the details of the battle aren't important for this book, what's worth knowing is that Greece was unprepared, outmaneuvered, and crushed into submission that day. With its defeat came the conclusion of classical Greece and the end of Greece's independence for the next 2,000 years. To mark the mass grave of the Greek soldiers who were slaughtered, Chironea elected a 20-foot-high monument of a lion on top of a pedestal. It looks forlornly across Chironea's fields of barley and cotton and white narcissus blooms staring into the round enclosure of King Philip's own monument to his dead Macedonian soldiers. Both graves are still visible in Chironea today, and as you enter the town from the highway, you see them both on the horizon. You see the lion and its grimace, and then you see what it's looking at. You see that the lion is not so much a monument to the slaughtered men of Greece as it is a wounded reminder of who exactly killed them and what resulted from their deaths. Plutarch grew up in the shadow of this monument to lost causes. I like to think of him sitting beneath the lion in his youth, simmering as a boy with both bitterness and pride and in many ways himself becoming a monument to lost causes, the guardian to a world that no longer existed in a new one that already was passing him by. And then the introduction goes on to try to explain why Plutarch is still relevant, why he wasn't passed by, why it's worth reading him even 2,000 years after he died. Well, I think that that's so beautiful and you capture the essence of what, exactly why it's still worth reading him and reading deeply. And then there's a number of threads that relate to Plutarch, but also relate to, well, your own essays, the, the art of, you know, essay writing as a, a literary genre and exactly that is that it shows you the evolution of the thought and how we think and also the fact that it's you know if you could look at novels almost as a way of almost showing us a way how not to live because the people in novels are so full of conflicts so this is what you want to avoid usually yes satisfying but then the uh -huh. essay can be almost a how to live or at least how to live a more meditative life 
Yeah, strangely, I hadn't thought about that, but that is, after having spent a number of years translating Plutarch, that certainly is his goal. I mean, he's somewhat subtle about it, but he is trying to guide people toward what he would call a virtuous life. And yeah, isn't necessarily too much in, interested in creating drama on the page. He actually does have an essay that some scholars call a novel because of the way it's structured. And there's a little bit of, of tension in it, but it's mostly humorous tension. So yeah, I think we can say that he avoided that and that maybe Maybe that's something that the essayist, that the essayist naturally tries to do. My last book was, or a recent book was a book titled The Lifespan of a Fact, which had a lot of drama in it. It is, a, it's about the essay, it's about the, the literary merits of the essay. But when we were making that book, my collaborator and I, who was a fact checker I was working with to fact check a particular essay for a magazine, he and I got along really well and we enjoyed debating the, the points that we were having to grapple with during this fact checking process. But when we decided to turn that process into a book, we immediately realized that these two characters in the book the writer, me, the fact checker, him, needed, well, they, if we, if we picture them as, you know, two characters on a stage, they're very, very close to one another in, in terms of their opinions, in truth. Like, he and I think very similarly about the issue of facts and veracity in, in the essay. And so we felt almost immediately when the project was becoming a book that these two characters needed to move further apart in order for there to be something interesting for the reader to experience and to witness. And so the John character's, well, character became amped up. He became a lot more of a diva. He became very stubborn, very arrogant. The Jim character became very anal retentive and also pretty stubborn and they became they became characters but we did that because we realized that there needed to be more space in between these two figures because otherwise they wouldn't have anything to talk about that would be interesting to to a reader and i don't know it's interesting that you bring that up because i don't know if if just the fact that we establish those two characters as characters, as versions of ourselves, but definitely not ourselves, if that automatically makes it fiction. I don't know if like moving them apart on the stage, so to speak, automatically makes that fiction in order to amp up the, the drama. But I bring it up because that is a book that deals with the essay, and yet, ironically, we actively worked to inject drama into that book <laughs> and inject tension and conflict into the book. So I think I agree with what you're saying. I just, I, won I wonder if there are 
organic forms of the essay that can have inherently in them drama. I'm trying to think of examples. Is that what you meant? Well, no, I didn't, I wasn't really so much taking a position. I was just, you know, speaking in the, the broad, the broad shape, as we know, like of novels and that they're plotted and that they're, you know, you have to have these crises that have to be resolved. And sometimes what's very interesting about an essay is that you, well, it, it's all these meditations that can have drama. I mean, it can be, you know, deal, you know, talking about life and death and, and many things that are important or, suicide or you know all those things so I think they are very dramatic but it seems like the angle is not to, to necessarily although it touches on it, it's not necessary to amp it up or milk it it's almost to like see what's there and then like look for poetic qualities or that's my taking my, my take on yeah yes I think we also look for we also look for a certain amount of movement in an essay, right? We, we look, or I look as a reader for something to develop. I, I often ask myself whether I feel like I've been changed over the course of an essay, if I have been changed intellectually or emotionally or, or in some other way, if I feel like I am in a different place at the end of an essay from where I was at the beginning, both as a writer and as a reader, because I guess I want to know that something has occurred, that something that maybe not outwardly, like maybe as you say, there isn't a plot, there isn't a car chase, there isn't, you know, interpersonal drama, but rather that something has occurred to me that I've undergone an experience and have somehow been affected by by that. I think I look for that as a reader and maybe I try to do it as a writer too. I think, I think, that, I think that you you bring up something in that book and throughout you know your various your own essays and also your collections the work the books you where you've edited you've selected essays and included your very interesting introductions and that is really a crucial difference between what is a fact and what are what is the truth or truths and truths change because like i could say i think you were but you were born and grew up around Boston and Cape Cod. I could say that defines you. Oh, that's a fact. That's I can put that on a map and I can put a date on it. And yet that doesn't even tell me very much. I mean, it tells me a little bit about where you grew up. <laughs> uh, but, but the truth of your existence and all, I mean, in the essay, all these interior journeys, that's about truths and feelings and things that cannot necessarily be plotted on maps. And yet okay. I do feel like if you were to define the way someone is and how they live their life, it's facts don't cover the most essential part of our experience of people and their experience of themselves. When I give my, my students an assignment the first day of class to try to get to know their peers, I pair them up in teams that hopefully don't know each other. And the assignment is to interview them and, or to interview each other and to come back to class the next day with like 100 or 150 words that 
capture the essence of this person that they for homework met with for maybe just an hour. So, you know, there are going to be limitations in what kind of essence they can capture. But we have a discussion about what sorts of questions you can ask each other in order to get at what you're talking about, that truth of a person or that essence of a person, and what sort of questions aren't really going to help us at all. You know, like, what's your favorite color? Or where did you grow up? Or, you know, what's your favorite movie or, or, or whatnot. They aren't really going to get us very far into understanding who this, this new peer in class is. So yes, I agree. Most people don't agree with that idea that, that there is a difference between facts and truth or accuracy and truth. You know, there was there was a play produced of the lifespan of a fact book and there's and i really like the play but there is there are a few lines that i really dislike in the play and i dislike them simply because they get the same response from the audience every time and it's not a response i like there's a moment when the John character is arguing with his editor about, you know, this, this essay that they're fact-checking, and he says, I'm not interested in accuracy, I'm interested in truth. And the audience just bursts into laughter. They just think that that's the funniest thing that they've, that they've ever heard. And I've seen the production, you know, on Broadway, I've seen it all throughout the US. I've interviewed the actors who've done it in Germany and Hungary and Singapore, and it always gets a laugh. And that completely breaks my heart because what it tells me is that while it's fantastic that, that you know, you see a difference and some readers do see a difference too, for the most part, you know, the experience of this play teaches me that people don't see a difference, that, that, that truth is truth. Truth equals facts. Truth equals accuracy. And that there isn't a difference between, between the two. And for a writer of nonfiction, that's, that's very difficult. Or a writer of essays, that's very difficult to, to work with because we aren't or at least some of us don't consider ourselves journalists, right? The, the tools that we are working with aren't what your favorite color is or where you grew up or what your favorite number is. If we're, you know, writing a profile of something, the, the tools that we're working with are, are long conversations in which, you know, people are sharing anecdotes about, about themselves and, and stuff like that. When I, do an interview with somebody. I don't take out a tape recorder. I don't have a notebook. I invite them on a walk so that we can feel at least that we're just chatting. And the walk may be two hours or three hours. It may also be a lunch or something. And I want us to just relax and, you know, come to trust each other as much as we can in those few hours. And and then we just start talking to each other as people. When we take out a tape recorder or a notebook, 
the folks we're interviewing start performing and they start telling us what they they want us to know about them in hopes that you know you know what we write about them will will sound as good as possible or make them look as good as possible we aren't dealing with the truth anymore in that case when a subject in a profile is performing a version of themselves for us we can really only get at the truth when they take their armor off when they let their guard down and they're they're talking to us as a person so there is there is a difference but my experience with this play tells me that the vast majority of people readers of consumers of art don't believe that that's the case and i think certainly in the current political climate in the us if not the global climate i think that people we we just don't have a tolerance at the moment for the idea that there's a difference between accuracy and truth we want them to be the same thing because we are exhausted you know <laughs> yeah i think part of that is is that people may have time for art in their art but have you know because of limited time they want to make sure that it's not too artful you know when it comes to crucial issues but you know that's the difference between the subjects of your books and essays are not, I mean, they might deal with some, sometimes a contemporary figure or, but it's not a timely, you know, we have to cover this election, we have to do that. I would expect that most people can differentiate between when you have to be factual on those things, you know, you do, there is such a thing as facts when it comes to, oh, I don't know, the number of people who attended an inauguration or the number of deaths of coronavirus. I don't, I don't want gray areas there. But it also brings attention to the fact that maybe in this data-driven society, which has only become more you know, evident in the digital age and, and the capitalist countries that you and I live in, where you know money is considered, maybe a little bit less so in Europe, but definitely in America and, and everywhere, really money is considered the how, how you mark someone's value. Everything is like quantified, you know, it's a number rather than a, a nuance, a quality. So, so we can, so people can feel like that, oh, I can live without poetry in my life, or they feel they could. Mm -hmm. But the essay seems to say, well, you know, what kind of life is that? I mean, a life is more than just those numbers. Yes? Yeah, yeah, I would agree. That's a, that's a great way of putting it. I wonder it would be a great study to see what sort of art is being made in countries not like ours that aren't fueled by obsession with money or what is quantified. Does the art feel different? Does it, does it affect us differently? That would be amazing to try to experience and figure out. But I, I agree with you. I'm not sure what I can add to that. It's interesting because you're, you're writing that, you're translating that and writing about uh, Plutarch, but you know, ancient Greece. And I'm always curious about those other periods in time before, well, before, well before celebrity culture, but before a lot of this commodification of art. Mm -hmm. And so 
we really don't know what it might be like. I mean, we can see the temples. I know that you've gone to, to back to Greece to, you know, you know walk in the path, try to get closer to that. But I have a sense that it was a more community-based, communal experience, you know, authorship. You know, even I'm a painter. I write, but I'm a painter. So, you know, authorship of a work of art was less focused on the individual artists. You know, people could be likewise with plays could be collaborated on and you don't know you know i don't know who is the final author i mean somebody penned it but then how, how do we know that that's what we've received over time so i'm a little bit nostalgic for that or feeling like that's if i could imagine or if you go to places that are untouched by um, modern society where well, i think that there's a lot of singing and things that are is shared you know in this during this experience with this play i i got to see a lot of theater and even though you know i'm an adult i have seen theater in the past i was now seeing a lot of theater because people were giving me tickets to see things in a different context. I was seeing it in the context of just sort of trying to figure out, you know, how plays worked. And because I was watching this play based on my book being put together. So I was just interested in, in watching them a little bit more closely than I ever had before, experiencing theater in a different way. And once when I was in New York for a rehearsal of lifespan or something. I went to see a play that was good. It was very good, had a really big cast. And in the middle of it, during no moment that was particularly sad, I found myself sitting in the audience crying and I knew exactly why I was crying. I was crying because I realized that this this amazing play that I was watching was the product of very successful collaboration. It was not just the actors who were on the stage. It was not just the people who'd created the costumes and the lights and the sets, but it was everyone else. It was the people who raised the money. It was the people who, you know, sold the drinks at intermission. It was, it was voice coaches. It was, you know, an endless number of people listed in the playbill. Everyone had to do their part in order for this single work of art to work. And in fact, if anyone, I assume, attempted to, you know, become, you know, the the, the star of that collaboration, it probably couldn't have worked. It worked because everyone knew their role and worked together and did things to help those people, you know, that group look better and that group work better. And it was a collaboration. And, and so I was crying because I, because I realized that my art form is me alone in a room for hours and hours and hours at a time, days and weeks and months. And at this point for this new book, years alone, not collaborating with anyone. I mean, in some ways I'm collaborating with Plutarch and in some ways I'm collaborating with like history, but otherwise I'm alone. And I had never felt that 
before. I'd never felt the sadness and the loneliness of writing before until I was sitting in that audience and watching this play that was so intricately put together. And I knew that like every single decision that was made, everyone involved in that production had to be on board for, had to, had to believe in and want to work toward. That's like true collaboration. And I just, I, I missed it. And so after that, I started spending as much time with the lifespan group as I could, because I just wanted to soak up that, that community that theater people have. And that idea that the only way theater can happen is if it's a large group of people working together. That's not, I think, I think I trailed away from what you were talking about, but that's just my way of saying I completely agree about the, the beauty of collaboration. And, and I, I'm not quite ready to say that the, the individual artist is a necessarily bad thing, but, but the individual artist is, is certainly a lonely thing <laughs> that I feel now and never have before. Hello everyone, this is Cameron McDonald with the Creative Process Podcast, and I thought this was a good time to introduce myself and comment on what John has just said. First off, I am an associate podcaster and producer here, and I'm also a bio major at uh, the University of Wisconsin. I'm currently in my junior year. I, uh, I felt this was a good time for a quick interlude because I felt what John has just said um, was, particularly, uh, was particularly interesting. He kind of comments on this lonely artist archetyped. And there's a really interesting trade-off to be made when creating art in this aspect. On the one hand, creating art individually is extremely fulfilling as you're the only one who needs to be accounted for. The sense of accomplishment of building and creating something by yourself is really special. Yet, John, in what he talks about, he, he kind of longs for that collaborative effort that the play he's watching offers. This may be a case of the grass is always greener on the other side, but it actually made me reflect on my own college experience in this, this lens that John brings forth. College is the most collaborative time of my life so far and will likely be for the rest of my life. However, it's just a tiny transient sliver in time before I'm into the professional world. It really is no wonder that the college years are those that many look fondest back on, as it is the time you're surrounded by collaborative opportunity. Basically the peak right before adulthood naturally lends you down a more lonesome path. I thank John for the uh, really introspective thought here, and I'd like to bring you guys back to the interview now. Well, I, I understand both sides of it as someone who is now doing a lot of collaborations, but who still retreats very much into the, you know, the lonely. I don't can experience it as lonely because you're, you're in a room where you're talking to groups of people. <laughs> You've got a lot of people in your head, but, you know, painting and writing, those are, you know, chiefly lonely activities. But I appreciate from both sides. And I understand because coming up, I... I think, I mean, there's different ways of writing. So some writers 
sort of, or say like Dadaist or some, you know, performance poets or something, some of them kind of managed to capture the spontaneous and embrace the flaws, you know, embrace what is almost like the performative aspects and embed that in their voice. But that I was very drawn to in writing the the harmonies. I wouldn't say perfection, but that's something that you can really at least strive towards in writing, the clarity. You know, you can work at it until it's, let's say, close to perfect. You know, it's all the things that might might shadow, you know, get in the way, can be taken out and that. And then what is interesting in theater is often, or any kind of performance is that it's done well, but also it has the space for the human dimension and the imperfections. Like that's almost why we go there. And it's interesting as a sidebar, I mean, I've had conversations with writers for theater, television, film, and they're writers and they'd said something like, oh, well, the words don't matter to me. And I thought, well, you're not you're never going to hear a novelist say that or a poet say that, <laughs> you know. But it, what it meant is, what they explained is that it's really the feelings they're after, and so that's a roundabout way of saying that in drama or performance, it's they're not always about the facts either. It's not just the words; it's the feelings. That's their poetry aspect of it, and what you're looking for. So I think it's analogous, and what you're looking for is the poetry of the experience, not just the fact. But I would have to say, and, and as a thing, I'd say that you collaborate, the lonely artists, they collaborate in a way with the imagination of the audience. Mm -hmm. And they, though your work of art is not dependent on them, in many ways, like a musician who is able to interpret a score, they add feeling in their reading, you know, so you have to have receptive readers. So definitely, and, and collaborating in many ways. I mean, even the resonance of a word, you didn't invent that word, but you're drawing on our collective memories and experience of it. There is, a, certainly in more lyric forms of the essay, there is the necessity of, of the reader, right? There's, there's the sense that you're, you're requiring the reader in a lot of ways to meet you halfway in order to not so much unlock the meaning, but just to unlock the full experience of the text, that they're bringing something to this gesture that you're making on the page in hopes that it does resonate with them and, and something in their lives. And that's a different, that is certainly a different kind of a saying, right? In the two traditions of the essay, there's the kind that wants to argue its point and persuade the reader to, you know, come to believe what the, the writer has to say. And then there's this, this other approach, which I believe is quite older, that's far more akin to, to poetry and the associative movements of poetry and relying on, on the willingness of the, of the reader to both meet you halfway in order to unlock that meeting, but also in a lyric kind of sense to step into the shoes of the, or to step into the soul of the speaker of the essay and to, you know, share the experience and to almost be spoken through by that voice. And it doesn't work if a reader's unwilling to do that. 
I want to talk more about the, the art of the essay, why it's so essential. And, and, and there's some beautiful passage where you kind of boiled it all down for us. But your uh, play was performed by uh, Bobby Cannavale, portrayed you, Daniel Radcliffe. You had you know, excellent uh, actors. And I just want to ask what that was like as a writer. As you say, it can be almost a disembodied experience when you're writing sometimes to kind of see a portrayal of yourself. And then, as you say, it's been performed in other countries too. You know, I think... So I've seen every production in the U.S. so far, and there have been some abroad that I haven't seen, but I've interviewed the, the actors. And I think that nobody believes me when I say this, but I don't think of the John on the stage or even the John on the page as me. And so it's not... It, it has never been a strange experience because as I said earlier, when Jim, the fact checker and I, my collaborator for the book, when he and I started working on the book, we immediately realized that we needed to be different people. We needed to be characters in some way. And so, so even in the book, I, I never really considered that John to be me just a version of me that was more of an asshole and, and more stubborn and more of a diva. And when the playwright started working on the script, we had a conversation and I explicitly told him, I said, listen, I know in order for this to work, you're, John's gonna have to be a bit of a jerk and you should feel free to do that. I know that, that that's gonna be necessary in order for the play to work. And so I, I've never really considered him me and therefore, when, you know, Bobby Cannavale is supposedly portraying me, I think I'm the only one ever in the audience who doesn't think that he's portraying me. Everyone else probably does. But the only weird thing about it is just hearing your name constantly, you know, spoken. And then it is a little bit weird to have Daniel Radcliffe kind of chewing you out, that's, that's weird because he's such a popular figure, it's a little disconcerting. But I, I think of him as a character, and so I, I just enjoy watching what these actors do with that character. So it's, it's never a strange experience to see the different versions of, of John. It's interesting. John has been played by much, much, much older actors. He's been played by some younger actors. He's been played by actors who don't want the audience to have any sympathy for John whatsoever. And he's been played by actors who totally want to win the audience over and see that, you know, John has a heart and, and you're misunderstanding him, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I think there's been something in all of the productions that I've really liked, but there's nothing, I think in the spirit of the book that is about, you know, taking license with the material of the world and trying to make something new of it, trying to make something more truthful out of it. The play does the same thing. The play took great liberties with the facts of that situation about fact-checking, and also took great liberties in the creation of these characters. And I think that that is fantastic. I think that that is what, what the book, at the end of the day, is trying to argue for, 
that art really should be granted the license to make things that move us and that change us and that affect us in some way. And to your point, certainly there are some facts that we shouldn't fiddle with, that there is a line somewhere that I think most people recognize. But otherwise, when it comes to, you know, trying to give us an experience and trying to move us and trying to create some resonance within an audience's own heart, artists should, should do everything they can to try to impact and affect and move an audience member. And essayists are no different. Essayists, I think, should, should always aim for the same. And you, the, you have in the making of the American essay, the volume three, what I think is just a beautiful synopsis of what the different literary forms. The way I see it, if fiction means shape and novel means new and poetry means make and drama means do, there ought to be a space that's reserved for our unknowing, that gorgeous, messy practice of perpetual pursuit the attempts that are as much about apprenticeships with knowing as they are with failure too. And I think it's also interesting that there is space for these different genres to overlap. I think it's actually what, you know, makes it a work interesting is when, you know, when you're introducing ideas into novels, you're introducing, you know, there's all those things. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. More and more, you know, the, program I teach in is a non-fiction writing program, but more and more we have students coming who want to work in hybrid forms. I mean, I think that that is where not just non-fiction, but all genres are, are moving gradually and very slowly, but um, they're moving toward introducing elements that that traditionally we may see in other genres and borrowing in order to create something new with the form that these students have inherited. It'll take some time and it'll probably happen more slowly in nonfiction than in other genres because nonfiction is always a little slower to evolve. But I, I do think that that's where we're moving just simply because more and more it's what my students are interested in and they they tend to become great essayists of their own after they graduate so i'm sure that they'll be influencing us pretty soon and then speaking about that hybrid quality or what you may have learned and and, and taken or adopted from you know other disciplines you know what has translation taught you? I mean, how, what do you bring back into your writing? And poetry as well, I believe. Were you a poet before you were an essayist? I don't know the whole trajectory. And were your, your first medium that you embraced? I started writing essays in college. Interestingly, because I was, I was a classics major, but wanted to move into studying English instead. And it's actually not very interesting a story, but when I decided to make that move, it was very late in my college career. And so I had to scramble very quickly to pick up some courses. And so I needed a writing requirement. And the only writing class that I could get into was a nonfiction writing class because poetry was already full and fiction was already full. 
nonfiction always is the, the, the less popular genre, I guess. And as soon as I started taking that class, I realized that these, these things called essays that the instructor was asking us to write were the exact things that excited me in classics. I primarily studied prose in Greek and Latin, and most prose in Greek and Latin is, is, is essayistic. There are a few novels in, in Latin, but mostly it's essayistic. And so I realized, oh, I've been reading this stuff forever. This is the stuff that I really dig. So I had always been interested in essays and then went to grad school for essays. While I was there, I, I also joined a poetry program because I, I liked my nonfiction program, but the focus at the time was on a particular form of nonfiction that I, I didn't feel like I was good at. It was primarily focused on the personal essay on memoir, which I really like now, but at the time I didn't, I felt very young and I just didn't feel like I could work in the form. I think I was 22 when I went to grad school. So I joined the poetry program as well and actually never wrote poetry. I'm not sure I ever wrote a single line of poetry while I was a, <laughs> while I was a student. I luckily had instructors who were very forgiving and 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 very to anything that that students handed in and so I actually just handed in short essays into my poetry workshops and poets god bless them they are game for anything I would hand in you know a five or ten page essay and they would they would just say oh, okay I guess this is what we're reading and then they would read it as poetry and give me feedback and it was marvelous because I could get a poet's response to this work of prose and then I could run across campus and get a nonfiction writer's response to the same prose and that gave me a sense of the differences between the genres but also more importantly the the great similarities and the similarities lie in the fact that both essays and poems move by association they move by following not the whims but the curiosities of the mind right they move by what triggers some passionate curiosity for an instant you feel on the page the mind jolting in the direction of that thing that caught its attention and then move again to check out something else that that is interesting it and i think all essays really do this the space between the leaps that the that the writer's mind is making vary in terms of how wide they are right so if if in poetry we might we might be a reader who's using stepping stones to leap from idea to idea in an essay, the step, stepping stones might be closer together, but we're still following that mind and, and making leaps with it. But to answer your question, poetry, poetry taught me how to move on the page and how not to be afraid while I'm writing, while I'm in the midst of a paragraph or even a sentence, how not to be afraid to make the move that doesn't necessarily make sense in that moment, but 
might feel right. And to have the, the courage to trust that instinct. And sometimes, you know, you're wrong and you make that move and it's just nonsense. But sometimes you can make that move and you find yourself suddenly in very surprising and very exciting terrain and you've perhaps just realized that you've changed the whole trajectory of the of the text that you're working on and poetry's really given me that that faith that sometimes really great things happen if you are are willing to leap a little further across the page than prose traditionally says you can it may surprise you or maybe it may be amusing or, or strange, but actually as I was reading in preparation for this interview, talking about leaps of imagination, uh, I, it gave me an idea. And so I just wrote, uh, when I was supposed to be researching, I was, just wrote a short story based on what... Oh, wow. Yes. Cool. So, <laughs> and not in ways that you directly inspired in a way that you would see the line. So it, it is a leap. But I thought, oh, and it just, it was a, few, a confluence of a few different things. This is an aside. You know, likewise, students, we're going to be sharing it with students. A student is going to anchor this and we invite their creative responses. So it's not just we're passively accepting. But I think, you know, I think it's very interesting. And I do want to talk a little bit about translation as well. But I, I want to also go, say this this area of, you know, in your deep meditations on ancient Greece and Plutarch, and then it seems like the essay itself gives space for philosophy in ways that we don't uh, necessarily find we have space for in contemporary life. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it is certainly, I noticed, we have projects in Greece, and so I did a lot of interviews there too, that philosophy is more an aspect of, you know, the average person's life, the acceptance of, you know, being able to live with history along contemporary lines. And then as I think back on the way people, this is like a really broad question, but as the way, on the, as the way people experience democracy and their political life in ancient Greece or even in Greece now would they think of that the arts and theater is really very closely linked to politics and we have decided well we, we're turning into entertainment but they thought it was a way to talk about those ideas mm -hmm. so what do you find interesting about that or should it be something we should encourage more it's a great question because for some reason, it feels very difficult these days to make great political art. And I know lots of my friends and colleagues will disagree and say I'm completely wrong and really ignorant. But, and of course, there are exceptions to this. There are glorious exceptions to this. But it feels often in political art that we're, we're reaching for the really low hanging fruit and that doesn't necessarily always translate to great art. It translates to an immediate kind of experience for the reader or the audience, which itself can be great, but I find it extremely difficult. And because of that, I find it also really exciting when I come upon a great essay that, that is dealing with a contemporary issue in an artful, surprising, nuanced way. I just don't think it happens 
frequently. And I think that maybe it doesn't need to at the moment, right? I mean, at the moment, we are so anxious and we feel that there are urgencies all around us that it, it could be that what we need is art that is responding urgently to those urgencies. You know, maybe this isn't the time for art that is going to last as long as Sophocles. Maybe what we need is for artists to speak immediately to society in order to, you know, shade what we're all experiencing at the moment in a different way so that we can see it from a different perspective and gain some new insights into what's going on. I think there's maybe a, a role for that. But I'm trying to think of like the last time I read, the last time I read something that, something like what you're talking about that spoke to an immediate timely political moment and yet also felt that it could speak to every moment, you know, that could speak to posterity and something. I think it's interesting and I think that it's true. I think that sometimes when something, I mean, dates quickly, it's hard for us to see it as a, you know, as a possible candidate for a classic. I was just interested because I had done interviews with various people. There's the Onassis Foundation and they had a, a cycle of theater and performances that democracy is coming to America because they're based in New York and in Greece and, and the things at the public theater. And so I had not realized the extent and that what I think in Greece that they're very proud of is or the idea that people who would go to plays were, you know, an engaged citizenry and that it could provoke greater engagement as opposed to an escape. So I wouldn't like to say that's the purpose of art, but it's interesting that, I mean, I don't think it should, uh, you know, art should be an anesthetic uh, to experience. No, I, yeah, I agree. I think I, that's what I meant earlier by hoping for in every essay that I as writer and you as reader are changed somehow and it doesn't always it it, it isn't necessarily a, a political change it can just be an emotional change it can just be an intellectual change but I yeah I think I think that's what I what I meant art that doesn't really take a journey doesn't doesn't ultimately feel artful to me if i if i don't feel like i've 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 wound up in a different place after reading something or watching something or listening to something i don't really feel like i've 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 gone on a journey i if i wind up in the same place emotionally or intellectually that i was when i started reading or started watching that thing I can't call that a journey. I just call it, it a vacation. And yeah, we have plenty of vacation art. I don't think we need any more vacation art. Or what did you call it? I forget what you call it. Just entertainment or, or whatever. Yeah, I don't think that that, I don't think that's the purpose of art. I do think the purpose of art is to, is to help entice the audience into terrain that they might not otherwise enter into on their own and to engage with ideas and feelings that 
might scare them or that they might think are uncomfortable or that they might think are are alien or taboo and to help them linger there and to understand that sometimes when you when you cross that border into different terrain you survive and you not only survive but you you may come out with some new insights you may come out with some new knowledge you may come out having understand having under having undergone an experience that helps you understand yourself a little bit better i think ultimately that's what absolutely every art form is really supposed to do to to try to bring us into that terrain that we never as audience members would feel comfortable going into on our own i don't think necessarily that all art does that but i think that 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 should be our aim and i i'm not also i'm also not claiming that i have ever achieved this but i know that when i'm in the midst of reading something that does this to me i find it absolutely exhilarating i also feel you know really uncomfortable and really on edge and and maybe angry and and um scared but at the end of the day thrilled that someone was able to show me something that i never would have encountered on my own otherwise and speaking of other forms of essential storytelling which are also under threat and that is journalism certainly long form journalism and so i wonder what your thoughts are on the future of journalism and what we might do to preserve it it's a big question while i'm not a, a journalist i always feel like i need to say that because the lifespan book for some reason the lifespan book was interpreted as a book about journalism while in fact it's a book about the essay and the literary essay but you know journalism is a sacred social service i honestly think that it's 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 most exciting the most exciting work happening at the moment is in long form journalism and it's where i think journalists get to be artists themselves in a in a different kind of way and i think you know i think if if the essay can survive then long form journalism certainly has has a future i don't know if i have a solution that's a tough question i don't i don't, I don't have the solution has anyone answered that with a spectacular solution for how to help journalism survive i spoke to uh, to some you know political journalists political scientists about it but they just say that it's finding other ways i mean podcasts is another i mean i just heard the pulitzer started to give awards for podcasts now i think i someone told me that i can i was so surprised but so i think that there's other avenues that yeah. Some, yeah so some say there's interesting you know things that evolutions of the form that aren't beholden to advertisers that's interesting but yeah. the fact checking needs for for political journalism and that has to be a little bit better we have to <laughs> a little bit just for the the, the essential certain yeah those are much better answers but yeah i think 
that journalism has, and again, I'm not a journalist, but I think that it has managed to be flexible in really successful ways. So you bring up podcasts, but other forms of digital storytelling, I think have been pioneered by journalists. And so I don't think we'll lose journalism. I think that we'll just find ourselves consuming and relying on journalism in different, in different forms, in different media, I assume. When my last anthology came out, which was the third of a planned, you know, three volume series of anthologies on the history of the essay, I was asked if I was going to do any more. And I said, absolutely not. And the reason why isn't because there aren't still lots of amazing essays out there by contemporary writers or writers from history that I would want to share with people, but rather because it's time for younger essayists and also essayists who don't look like me to create anthologies of work that excites them and of work that we haven't seen before and work of voices we haven't heard from before. I realized when the last of these anthologies came out that, you know, the three, well, I don't know if I'd include my anthologies among the three big essay anthologies in American culture, but certainly the other major anthologies in American culture have all been edited by white men. And I think one thing I can say is, I'm not going to do any more. It's now, it's time for uh, a younger generation to look into history and also look to their peers and their contemporaries and put together similar, well, not similar books, but put together their own anthologies of, of work that, as I said, can introduce us to exciting new voices that I might be completely oblivious to. We can use more inclusion in the anthologies that are supposedly representing the, the genre. And I think one of the best ways to do that is, is, for, is at least for me to say, okay, now it's your turn. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to cheer you on. I will champion you as much as possible. But now I want to I see what's exciting you about the genre. I want to see where you think the, the genre can go next and which voices are going to take us there. I think that's how I want to say that. I got a little tripped up on the way there. No, I think that that is, is a beautiful message and it's true. And that's what you do with your, with your own essays as well, is that you invite different voices, different perspectives. And, and so it's great to pass that baton on to, to other voices, uh, other from different backgrounds and from this new generation. So I want to thank you, John Degada, for your books and essays inviting thoughtful meditation and observation and for questioning the nature of facts and truth itself and all you have done to contribute to this gorgeous, messy practice of perpetual pursuit of unknowing. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you, Mia. This has been wonderful. 
The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Cameron McDonald. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved in our exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info.